Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as we're going to begin a progression through the story. The only one that really matters, the only one that gives meaning to anything else, the only one that is worth knowing and concerning yourself about. How stories begin often tell the end from the beginning. It was a dark and stormy night. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. Well, maybe that one doesn't tell you a whole lot. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Perhaps the most famous opening line of all is, Once upon a time. And for our purposes, it's going to carry that tagline that kind of goes after it, which is, Once upon a time in a land far, far away. Now, for those of us that grew up a little bit later, perhaps we think of a long long ago in a galaxy far, far away. But most stories start with once upon a time. And the thing is, when a story starts with once upon a time, you know it's probably going to end with happily ever after. But you also know that once upon a time tells you that the story is just beginning and that happily ever after is going to come, but there are going to be moments in the midst of the story when you wonder how it's ever going to get there. Any of you ever find yourself watching a movie and you know it's going to end happily ever after, but you just can't imagine how they're going to get there? I know that I'm one of these guys that I like to know how long the movie is going to be before I start it. Anybody else out there? Let me just see your hands. We're going to start a support group soon, all right? I like to know it's 97 minutes or so, so that when I'm watching the movie, I can time how close we are to the resolution. Because if it's a 98-minute movie and it's 40 minutes in, there's still lots of bad things to come, right? You know that. On a TV show, if it's an hour TV show and the problem is solved at 28 minutes, something else is going to happen. And so you know that there's going to be drama and adventure and conflict and good and evil, but you're looking forward to the journey that it takes to get from once upon a time to happily ever after. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take the journey of the Bible from once upon a time to happily ever after. And what we're going to do is journey together through this and see what the overall story is that ought to give meaning to our lives. And it starts in Genesis. That's what the word Genesis has come to mean, right? Beginnings. That's what it meant here, in the beginning. And what happens here is if you follow what happens in verse 1 of Genesis, if you accept it on faith and Last week we talked about some of the proofs for the existence of God and that the world and those things are proofs for the existence of God or at least clues to the existence of God. But the truth is, you just have to accept it on faith at some level. If God wanted to prove to us He created the world, He would have given us a list of proofs. He wants us at some level to have some faith that He did it. Everything around me shows me He did it. 
I must take the step to believe it. And if you believe chapter 1, verse 1, then everything else in the Scripture begins to fall into place. And this morning, we're going to tell this like a story. And so the beginning is the beginning and the beginning for us. Now, you, remember, you realize that the beginning is not really the beginning because God's always been there, right? But for our story, it's the beginning. It's like an author that decides to write a story. That first page is the first page. And for us, the first thing that happens is God created. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... Uh, it's going to be easy to see where I get my point here in a minute, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The point here in the beginning is that God, out of nothing, the old uh, Greek term for that is ex nihilo. It just means out of nothing. And what we mean there is that God didn't take some raw materials and put them together, that He literally created the raw materials to create the universe. Now, what's interesting is the word created there in the original language is only used of God. In the Old Testament, no one else creates. Only God does. And the point and the reason for that is that man, we may make things, we may build things, but we don't create things because we always start with something. Right? We were talking about all the great things God has made for us one night as we were getting ready for bed, and Eli and I were sitting there in his room. And I said, Eli, what are you thankful for? And my family and Misty, our dog, and he said, and Legos. And part of me wanted to go, well, I don't, you know, God didn't just plop the Legos down here. But the truth is, God created everything we need to make things like Legos. Amen? And so God is the one that creates. Now, I want to go back to a minute to something we talked about last week, and that is this unique thing that Christians believe about God, and that is that God is triune. There's three in one. And the reason that that's important for creation is, first of all, let's talk about that for a minute. It's one of those things that, you know, complicates our minds. We can't really get our heads around it. But Scripture teaches over and over again that God is three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what Scripture also teaches is, and this is an interesting thing, that each one of them it seems like is in a contest to give glory and serve the others. And what we see in their relationship is self-sacrificing, other-centered love. And what it really teaches us is that true love is love that is self-sacrificing and other-centered. Mutually self-giving love. Or to put it another way, true love is to center your life around another person. That's true love. When you think about a husband and wife that get married, what you do in marriage is say that I am centering my life around another person outside of myself. I am going to serve them. And what happens in the beginning is before we are created, God is in this three-person, self-sacrificing, giving love. In fact, the ancient church fathers had a name for it that was perichoresis. Now, not, no test on that, but... It literally means, if you take it apart, 
Choresis is the word we get our word choreography from. And it has to do with dancing. Now, I know this is going to blow some Baptist minds, but just stick with me. And peri means around. And the relationship was described by the early church fathers that the Godhead, the Trinity, were dancing around with one another. That's what C.S. Lewis said about it. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Now let me just say that the reason this is important is because if God is not three people, three persons in one, then what you have at the beginning is an inability for God to show love. But if it is three in one, dancing around in this mutually self-sacrificing love, then you have the very fountain of what existence is all about. That it is a community that knows and loves one another, and it helps us to understand the why. Here's what I used to struggle with as a teenager, as in the college first few years, is why would God create us? He's three in one. He's got perfect unity, perfect harmony, and he creates a world that he knows we're going to reject him. He knows we're going to turn away from him. He knows that he's going to have to die for us from the moment of creation. Why in the world would God ever create us? Jonathan Edwards was a pastor who dealt with that question, and somebody has summarized some things he says saying this. Why would an infinitely good, perfect, and eternal being create The ultimate reason that God creates is not to remedy some lack in God. God didn't need us. But just to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. God's joy and happiness and delight in divine perfections is expressed externally by communicating that happiness and delight to His created beings. The universe is just an explosion of God's glory. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw creatures to an ever-increasingly share in the Godhead's joy and delight. The ultimate reason for creation, then, is a union in love between God and His creatures. The reality is God created to invite us to be part of the dance. Now, let's talk about what he created for a minute. I mean, he created some magnificent creations. Amen? I mean, when you walk outside and you see what he has created, it is unbelievable. I mean, Scripture writers over and over again encourage us to look to the heavens and to think about what he has created. They call us to ponder the works of His hands, that He knows the stars by name, that He puts them one by one up there. Scientists today can put the Hubble telescope out there and are amazed at what they find. And we could go on and on and on about the glory and majesty of God's name because of what the heavens are declaring. But I like to think also of the intricacy of what He created. I saw a couple of things this week that just blew my mind. 
First of all, I don't know whether you knew this or not, but in the top inch of forest soil where your foot would sit, there are 340 different kind of animals. And in a one-mile walk, you will have stepped on over 600,000 creatures. Did you realize that when you wash your hands, you know, if you do the happy birthday song, you know the happy birthday song, you're supposed to wash your hands. Anybody know that? Y'all are looking at me crazy. All right. You're supposed to wash your hands and sing happy birthday. That tells you how long you're supposed to wash your hands. Okay, y'all try that at lunch. All right. When you do that, you wash off about 5 million bacteria. Now, if some of you germaphobes out there, don't rush to go wash your hands right now. All right. Five million bacteria. And inside those bacteria are things that make up the bacteria that scientists haven't even been able to get down to. Most people, you know, I remember growing up there with the electrons and the the protons and the neutrons and the nucleus and things went around that. The farther they get into the atom, the more it looks like there's no planning, except that there is planning, that there's no planning. And they can't even imagine how something that intricate could be built. There's a book out there called Darwin's Black Box. And if you really like uh, reading that will put you to sleep in a scientific way, it's good, all right? But what he says is the Big Bang isn't the biggest problem for Darwinists. It's what happens in the tiniest parts of what we can see. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you look through the creation account, and we're not going to read all that today because we're going through Genesis 1 through 3, but you know he says, let there be light, and light comes flying out of his mouth at the speed of light, and he says day and night, and he separates them, and then he puts the waters out, and then he puts the land out, and then he has some plants and animals, and he grows all that. And then on day 6, we come to the culmination of creation. I mentioned Stephen Hawking last week. Uh, there are lots of disputes about what he believes in religion, but he, he is one of these guys that's a scientist, brilliant beyond what I can imagine. And one of the things he said about the universe after he talked about the Big Bang and how it all set up, he said, it's almost as if the universe knew we were coming, that it is created or happened in such a way that it's almost like it was prepared just for us. And I say, Exactly. That's what God did. Now, I want you to let that soak in for a minute. That what we have on this earth, what God has created in the heaven, saw its culmination in us. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all creatures. So God created him, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, the whole earth, every tree, they will be yours for food. Now all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move, everything that has breath, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And then I love verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
all of creation builds to this moment where we are created. And we are the second most sacred things in all of creation. The second most sacred thing in this universe. Only being under the uncreated one. It says we are created in God's image. And we don't have time today to go into all that that means. But there are the ideas of reason and moral right and wrong, even arguments for the existence of God or things that God built into us. But the point is that God created us unique, different from the other species of the earth. And here's what creation was all about. What I love about creation at the beginning of this is that Adam and Eve were living in absolute perfect harmony. No prejudice, no stress, no hatred, no rebellion, no worry, no guilt, no fear. Nothing had shattered that original harmony. Have you ever seen things that just work well together? I've had peanut butter sandwiches before. But it's much better when it's peanut butter and jelly. Now, it depends on what your particular variety is. God's people like grape jelly. Everybody else, others. But peanut butter and grape jelly just go together. Amen? Some of you there. You know what I'm talking about. Things that just work together. And when they work together, perhaps there have been those moments in your life, in your marriage or in relationships, in your workplace, where everything is just working together. One of the new terms for that is synergy. The old term for that is just harmony. It comes from music. And this thing is, at the beginning of time, when God creates Adam and Eve, there is perfect harmony there. They're living together in harmony. It says that they were naked and they felt no shame. There were no shame. They didn't know what shame was. They didn't know what guilt was. They didn't know what failure was. They didn't know any of that. I mean, sometimes when I see science fiction and they have this idea of what utopia would be like, I want to say, is that the best we can do? But when you think about Adam and Eve walking in perfect harmony with the Lord, walking in perfect harmony with one another, untamed, free, elusive happiness, and ultimate freedom, a place that the greatest saints and men of God have longed for, the places that no one can even imagine, that is where they lived. It was pure poetry. Everything was in sync. And we even see from the Scripture that apparently, at their daily quiet times, God showed up in a real way. Not in a spiritual way or some way that we in our mind we hear from the Lord. They walked with God. And whatever else that word means, it means there was intimacy there. So once upon a time in a land far, far away, God created. And then the enemy tempted. It's always a villain, right? Right? The Wicked Witch of the West or Darth Vader or Cruella DeVille or the Joker or the Evil Queen. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Remember that story? Sometimes I get confused whether it's Sleeping Beauty or Snow White. I think it's Snow White, right? I'm sure if I ever have a little girl, I'll know those better than I know Incredibles and... 
I know Batman and I know Spider-Man. Snow White, the fairest of them all, the evil queen decides that it's time to put a curse. So what does she use to entice Snow White? An apple. I wonder where the writer got that idea. You know, have you ever thought about our fairy tales a lot or just the retelling of God's ultimate story? Well, you will over the next three or four weeks, all right? In Scripture, it tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. If there is a valid villain list out there, the serpent, Satan, is number one, and everybody else isn't even on the list. If there's a 1 through 50, Satan is number 1 through 50. He is the villain of villains, the enemy of the Lord God Almighty. And the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he begins this temptation account. A couple of things I want you to see in here as we think about this is that the way that Satan always begins temptation is he begins a conversation. And just a little note, the longer you're in the conversation, the more likely you are to give in. He said to the woman, I've said this before from this pulpit, but I'll say it again. We give Eve a hard time, but a couple of things about that. First of all, Scripture seems to suggest Adam was standing right there beside her. The second thing is, when we get to the New Testament and it's talking about Christ coming as the second Adam, not the second Eve. He said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? That's not what God said. God said you can eat of any tree except for this one. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle, and you must not touch it or you will die. Simple lady, you are not going to die if you eat the fruit. God knows that when you eat that fruit, you're going to be like Him. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to enjoy what He's made. He is preventing you from living life to the fullest. That's the Larson paraphrase. That's what it says, though, isn't it? God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That's how Satan does it. He starts a conversation. At the beginning of the conversation, he questions God's Word. What will happen in your life is that he'll question what you know to be God's truth. Did God say you couldn't do that? Did God tell you that it was okay for this or not? And then after that, not only does he question God's word, he outright denies it. You know that's not going to happen. And as you begin this conversation, he then comes to the point where he says that God's, God's not, not really caring about you. And suddenly he begins to point out those things in your life that you're missing. You know, there's a Ten Commandment about that, right? Thou shalt not covet. But isn't it 
the job of our culture to remind us of everything we're missing? Anybody go home and watch TV this afternoon? You'll be reminded of what you're missing. I saw a commercial yesterday for a vehicle that is completely out of my price range. We're not looking for a vehicle. I couldn't buy a vehicle right now if I wanted to. But if I wanted to, it would be out of my price range no matter what my price range was. It didn't tell me that except in a little bitty print on the bottom. Starting at what a house is, right? But this is what happened. I, didn't, I looked down there to see what the price was going to be. I knew it would be down in the bottom because it is the most amazing car you have ever seen. It can tell when the driver's falling asleep. I must have snore sensors somewhere. It can tell when you are getting too close to something that's dangerous. It can automatically switch lanes. It can tell you when things... It's got this unbelievable system. And I thought, I need that car. Who knows when I might fall asleep? I haven't done it in driving in 20 years, but this car will know when I do. Now, here's the point. Do I need that car? No. But our society has learned the devices of Satan. If you're in advertising, I'm sorry about that, all right? You question, and then you show what you don't have. What I wish would have happened, and what I wish would happen in my life, is that at this moment they would stop and say, wait a minute, let's take inventory of what God has given us. You know, the solution to coveting is to remember what God has given. But they don't. And then Satan always makes the decision look good. Look what it says. The woman saw the fruit, and it was good for food. Man, it looks like it tastes good. And it was pleasing to the eye. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, how in the world she knew that fruit looked like it could gain wisdom if she ate it? I don't know. But it was the unknown. So at the beginning of our story, once upon a time in a land far, far away, God created, the enemy tempted, and man rebelled. She took some of it and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The first tragic element of the story of all stories is that man chooses the enemy's way over the Creator. And immediately what we see is sin floods into the world. It's not a trickle. It's not a little bit. Sin and evil floods in. There's no turning back, it seems. There's no going forward. Just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, shame comes. Guilt arrives. Responsibility gets shifted. Separation occurs. And responsibility is avoided. Sin ruins our innocence. It 
separates us from intimacy with God. This walk in the garden became something that they wanted to hide from, not something they wanted to be a part of. And those of you in this room who have ever been caught in the midst of sin, which is 100%, will know in yourself that that is the time when you least want to get into God's Word, when you least want to spend time in prayer, when you least want to be around the things of God. And you might go, but you go at a distance. You go while hiding. There are people in churches all across this land every Sunday that sit in the pew and hide as best they can while sitting up straight. You see, sin is not just a little miscalculation. It's not a little problem in judgment. It is the problem that has entered our world as we gave in to the enemy. It ruins relationships. I mean, the sowing on the fig leaves, which has become emblematic of this moment shows not only that guilt and shame has come and that innocence is gone, it shows a division in the relationship between Adam and Eve. Not only is our relationship and our intimacy with the Lord ruined, but their intimacy and relationship with each other is ruined. And we begin to avoid the responsibility for our own shorts, our own misgivings, our own sin. They hide. I mentioned last week God is all-knowing, so He only asks questions to get people to realize things that are happening with Him. He doesn't ask questions for information, so He is not really looking for them. Right? He knows where they are, and He knows what they've done. Because nothing on the face of the earth or in the entirety of this universe escapes the foreknowledge or the sight of our Lord. And they hide. You know what's interesting to me? As we are gradually moving towards a world when everything we do is going to be tracked. I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but satellites, they're going to know where we are, when we're there, and how long we're there. And what's amazing to me, and I'm not talking about any political reference here, uh, is how uncomfortable people are with that. And I understand the right to privacy and all of that. Okay, I'm not saying I'm completely comfortable with the government knowing where I am. But what is amazing to me is we're already there with God. And yet it doesn't make us uncomfortable at all in our sin. Except when we begin to think about Him. Shame and guilt and separation and responsibility. And then we see in verse 20 and following that Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. I want to show you a couple of things about that. I mean, you know the passage that they're cursed, that, that he curses the, the serpent, he curses women, um, and then he curses man and the work. And we're going to go back to something he says in the middle of that in a minute. But verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. For all we know, that was the first thing that had to die in Eden were the animals that gave up their life for the skin that God would use to clothe them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know what God is saying there, don't you? It's an act of mercy and grace. Because if Adam were able to reach out and take 
and eat of the fruit that would make him live forever, that he would live forever as a man who knew right and wrong and gave in to evil, and there would be absolutely no hope. That's not a bad thing. God's getting them out of there because if they were to grab what was they would be eternally like we are. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to be eternally like I am. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. See, here's the thing. With this story and what this story teaches us, when we reach out to grab those things we think God is denying us of, we will take and enjoy for a moment, but then we will realize we are forfeiting the great things God has provided for us. It's amazing how the scene is set in the first three chapters of Genesis for what comes for the rest of this book. But I want you to notice something. Because one of the most used and effective literary devices in writing is foreshadowing. You know foreshadowing, right? When there's something that's placed in there to point towards something that's come or that will come later. And in chapter 3, verse 15, it tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That verse has been used for all kinds of stuff. While women are scared of bugs, snakes, but the point is they're enmity. And between your offspring and hers, now there's little doubt about what this means, and her offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call that the first gospel. That even at the very beginning of the story, God shares what's coming. And the idea is that the snake will snap and get a bite in on the heel of the woman's descendant, but that a descendant of the woman will crush Satan's head. Passion of Christ movie by Mel Gibson several years ago now depicted that in a very (laughs) open way. When in the midst of Jesus deciding whether or not he was going to the cross, there is a close-up of the foot of the man who played Jesus. And as the serpent curls around, his foot simply smashes the head of the serpent. And what happens here at the beginning, even in what God does for the man and woman, even though they have chosen the opposite way, He covers them. He takes care of making the clothes that will suffice. He makes sure they don't touch the tree. He makes sure they don't get back in. But then he also gives hope in the very beginning of the story. This morning as we've gathered here, we need to understand that that everyone in this room, in our own personal lives, live out the the first three things we said this morning that are a part of the bigger story. We all whether we realize it or not, are created by the Lord God Almighty to be in a relationship with Him that would be harmonious and sweet and true and the epitome of love. 
But just like Adam and Eve, all of us are tempted by the enemy of God. And just like Adam and Eve, all of us give in to that temptation. And we find ourselves naked and ashamed and guilty with relationships broken without the ability to enjoy the gifts of God. The question is whether or not we will latch on to the hope that God intends for us. Now let me say, sometimes preachers run to the hope without really dealing with the sin. And I will tell you that sin is the problem in the universe. It's not a problem. It's not one of the problems. It is the problem. And so you must deal with your sin, but you must understand, as we'll continue through this story, dealing with your sin is something you cannot do on your own. But it only comes in a relationship with God through the way He has provided. And I would never want you to think that you got to wait till two weeks from now when we talk about the curse being broken to ever think that you got to wait till then to get your sin problem taken care of. And so this morning, if you're here and you have never had a moment in your life when you have asked God to forgive you of your sins through Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you right here today. Let me say this to you who are Christians, people that are followers of Jesus. If you've got sin in your life, it is hampering your relationship with God. It is hampering your relationship with others. If you're hiding, sitting straight up this morning, let me say to you, today is a day to accept the forgiveness God's already provided and to let that guilt be left behind. 